Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Bruno Perrault, the author of Queer Theory, The French Response, and the book was published by Stanford University Press in 2016. Hi there, Bruno. Hello. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's my pleasure. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in exploring the issues and questions that are the focus of the book? Of course. Well, I actually wrote a book two years before this one called The Politics of Adoption, A Gender and the Making of French Citizenship. And the book was very much about the sort of sanctuarization of the body in contemporary France as a sort of a repository of uh, French identity. Mm-hmm. And when suddenly uh, in 2012 and 2013, hundreds of thousands of people demonstrated against gay marriage and adoption uh, in the streets of Paris and the big cities of France, I, I thought I had to carry on uh, working uh, uh, on these movements and what it meant in terms of national identity and, and belonging. Mm-hmm. And you, Bruno, you, you have an academic position in the United States at MIT. And in the introduction to the book, you talk about how the concerns that you're looking at in the book have sort of been intertwined with your own career, including shifts back and forth between France and the United States. Could you say a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. The irony of, of the book, and we are going to talk about that uh, later, I imagine, is that opponents to gay marriage and adoption in France argued that the very cause of gay marriage was American queer theory. And as you know, American queer theory uh, is made up of of a lot of French texts. So it it is the story of the return of French theory to France, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I have somehow crossed the Atlantic the the opposite way. I I, I started my career uh, in France uh, at at the University of Paris 1 and Sciences Po, and then I landed at the Institute for Advanced Study and then uh, at at MIT. So for me, there was also something important to think about my own trajectory through the study uh, of of, of these um, movements against gay marriage and uh, adoption. And obviously, when I was in France, I also participated contributed to LGBT uh, studies uh, mm-hmm. by, uh, of course, participating in a certain number of research seminars, such as uh, the seminar of Françoise Gaspard and Didier Ribon at the uh, École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales, uh, Sociology of Homosexuality, which was really one of the major uh, places where queer theory was discussed and translated into into French. So I had already observed somehow the reactions against the very presence of queer theory in France when I was uh, at the time in Paris. If we could just go back, Bruno, to the 
uh, trigger for the book, these uh, protests in 2012 and 2013. You talk at the outset of the book about the Loi Taubira, the Taubira Act of 2013, and the debates around uh, gay marriage in relationship to this proposed and then passed legislation. Could we just give for our listeners a kind of quick overview of the legislation? Why was this period 2012-13 so important and what was the what constituted the legislation? Well, so basically, um, I have to start a little bit earlier mm-hmm. to, to understand the, the entire uh, story. The very start of all this is a decision by the highest civil court in France, the La Cour de Cassation, mm-hmm. uh, in 1989, which denied the right uh, to gay couples to be recognized by the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it was at the heart of the HIV epidemics, and this had a dire, extreme consequences for, for gay couples in France. So that's when uh, LGBT associations started to imagine what could be the legal forms of recognition of, of, of gay and lesbian couples. And uh, a certain number of bills uh, were conceived with the collaboration of a certain number of members of the parliament, including, that's quite interesting for nowadays, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who was one of the first mm. member of the French parliament to participate in, in, in conceiving these um, bills. And, and then the debate was launched on civil unions after uh, the dissolution of the National Assembly in 1997. Eventually, the text was voted, uh, but it excluded adoption and, and, and family rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus civil unions, so le PAX, uh, le Pacte Civil de Solidarité, mm-hmm. was limited in terms of, at first, access to citizenship, but also in symbolic terms. It was just a piece of paper at a court, a civil court, and not a celebration uh, at City Hall. Mm-hmm. So associations, organizations kept on pushing uh, for more recognition, and in particular for gay marriage. Mm-hmm. And it's actually in the very seminar that I mentioned earlier, the seminar uh, of uh, Françoise Gaspard and Didier Eribon, that uh, Daniel Borillo, who is a professor of law in France, made a presentation about European jurisprudence. And he basically made the case for generating jurisprudence by saying it's impossible to expect everything from the parliament. If not, we are going to wait for decades to mm-hmm. to have access to gay marriage so let's produce jurisprudence and after the seminar uh, Françoise Gaspard, Didier Ribon, uh, lawyer Caroline Mecari, da- Daniel uh, Borillo met, elaborated a petition asking mayors of France to celebrate gay marriages and one mayor in the south of, of, of France in Bègle Bordeaux uh, from the Green Party Noël Mamère actually did celebrate a marriage, which created a huge debate in France. And the Socialist Party at the time kept on refusing to support gay marriage, but they were somehow on the spot, because in other European countries, such as Belgium and then Spain and Portugal, Mm -hmm. gay marriage uh, had been adopted or was on the agenda. Uh, And they had somehow now the pressure from within the left So that's how in 2007, uh, gay marriage uh, was on the political platform of the Socialist Party for the 
for the presidential uh, election. So it's important to remind that because mm-hmm. what I argue in the book is that it's something, as we say in French, that the Socialist Party did at leur corps défendant, which means somehow a little bit against their will. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why uh, the very reactionary movements were very vocal in 2012. So the law now, to answer directly your question, mm-hmm. basically opens marriage to gay couples. And because adoption is also possible both for single people under the age of 28 and married couples, opening gay marriage led to opening uh, adoption I mean, joint adoption to gay couples. And last thing that might be important to mention uh, as of now is that the law uh, was named by the government the law on mariage pour tous, marriage for all, mm-hmm. uh, to sort of give a universalist frame to the debate by saying we do not focus specifically on gay couples, but right. we just end a discrimination which is understandable in the long history of France and uh, a certain fear of of communities, which I discuss in in the book. Mm -hmm. But it's also a double-edged sword, because that's precisely on the basis of this argument that some people argued that if marriage is marriage for all, it means that there is no real sort of support, visibility with regards to to sexual minorities. Mm -hmm. Somehow it's also a way to euphemize uh, the text. Right. And I'm going to want to come back to this question of community and, and minorities um, a little bit later on. You make the point, Puno, that the movement that emerged in France against this new legislation was one that blamed, and I'm quoting here, this growing empire of gender theory imported from the United States, and especially the work of Judith Butler. So there's a lot I want to ask you about. But I guess the first question that I want to ask is the question about the opposition or the difference in the way that you're using them or thinking about them historically uh, between these notions of gender theory and queer theory in the book? Right. That's that's the core uh, of the book. And this is a question I often have, of course, Mm -hmm. because basically the opposition to uh, gay marriage and adoption in France was made in the name of the danger for children psychological danger, moral mm-hmm. danger for the children, which is a quite traditional argument, that w- an argument that was already used w- uh, during the debates on civil unions in 1998-1999. But it went a little bit further uh, in 2012 mm-hmm. by focusing on gender, the notion of gender itself. Somehow everything started in 1995 with the conference of Beijing mm-hmm. on women's rights. Uh, of the United Nations, uh, where the notion of gender was used not only as a category of public policies, uh, but also as a critical concept. And the Vatican, which as a state was represented in this very conference, started to realize that using the notion of gender rather than using the notion of sex in terms of public policies could have implications, uh, strong impact on traditional family, Mm -hmm. basically. So the Vatican installed, created all kinds of committees to monitor gender equality programs in the world, but also gender studies programs in the world. Mm -hmm. And the, the fear here is that if you 
if you use the notion of gender, which is a quite flexible notion, you can approach the category of men, women, husband, wives, mother, father, in a critical way, and then you might contest the hierarchies between, uh, of course, men and women, but also heterosexuals and homosexuals, sort of making the path to homosexuality easier. Mm-hmm. And not to use theological arguments in pretty secular societies, the Vatican uh, came up with this idea of human ecology, Mm -hmm. uh, which means that the traditional family should be protected the way nature itself should be protected. So this is how the debates on gay marriage and adoption started, by saying it's not only about the very reform, the very bill uh, on gay marriage and adoption. It's also about a broader intellectual theoretical movement that has a certain number of implications in terms of public policies. And this movement is the movement uh, that consists in studying gender and sexuality. So that's why they talked about la théorie du genre, Mm -hmm. uh, gender theory, Uh, to create a scapegoat that would explain all the transformation of the law uh, in contemporary uh, Europe and France. Now, it's not only about the notion of gender as such, it's also about a critical kind of use of the notion of gender. And that's why, more specifically, the authors that are targeted by the opponents to gay marriage and adoptions are authors which uh, when we consider affiliated with this broad and diverse movement, which Mm -hmm. is queer theory in the United States. Here, there's a sort of a double dimension, playing the anti-American card rather than using theological arguments. I I show in the book a poster of an anti-gay marriage movement, uh, which used an image of the... Normandy, 1994, saying, la théorie du genre, here here they come. So there is this sort of strategic use of the anti-American card, uh, but it's also associated with a fear of minorities, of critical minorities, and the sort of the most salient part of it or aspect of it is indeed queer theory. Mm-hmm. That's why also we can we saw online a lot of videos denouncing the fact that behind gay marriage and adoption in France was a plot by leftist lesbian scholars uh, working in California. So there's this right. sort of fear, uh, if only, but there's this fear <laughs> of an invasion of a minority. So it's both a sort of question of hegemony with regards to the United States, mm-hmm. uh, so France vis-à-vis the U.S., but also a fear of the enemy within that could circulate uh, through theory itself. Well, and, you know, we're going to come back to this as we talk about the different chapters in the book, Bruno, but I guess I want to ask you about the notion of the French response. The book looks at the work of activists and scholars, the emergence of queer media, and you also make the point that this isn't really a book about 
reception Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the source material that you're looking at, but also in terms of the way that you're approaching the French response. You talk about reinterpretations, accretions and deletions, um, including, you know, one of the significant deletions is that that there's a much longer heritage here that is actually French rather than just an American import. So throughout the book, you use the notion of fantasy to think about this, what you call this transnational construction of the very idea of queer theory. So I'm wondering if you could say a bit about response versus reception, and also about how fantasy is working for you as a way of getting at the back and forth across the Atlantic in terms of scholarship, ideas, and politics. So the response for me, it's really the sparkle, right? The, the, the fact that there's an opposition that is d- drawn by the opponents to gay marriage and adoption themselves. But I didn't want to use the word reception uh, mm-hmm. itself, because reception somehow sort of reifies two different spheres, uh, this, uh, this idea that something would be produced somewhere and then exported uh, uh, elsewhere, uh, as if we could actually find an origin, something more fundamental, a source mm-hmm. for uh, uh, intellectual movements and, 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 and ideas. It, it tends also to think in terms of sovereignty, and this is something I wanted to avoid at all costs, because mm-hmm. what I actually observed is that the exchanges are extremely complex. There are different layers, and it's all impossible. And it actually, it's not important to try to identify sort of the very origin or the true interpretation of queer theory. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not the, the goal of the book was not for me to try and say, well, you know, this is how queer theory was interpreted in France was practiced in France, but it shouldn't be like this because originally this text said this, this text said that. On the contrary, what was interesting for me is that how these texts were embodied, how they were transformed by different practices at the activist level, uh, uh, academic level, in the mass media, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's also why I use the notion of fantasy and I relied uh, in the introduction, I used uh, the, the notion that John Scott uh, coined in a famous article uh, called Fantasy Echo. Mm-hmm. And the notion of Fantasy Echo is about these sort of representations, the way a, a, a nation conceives of itself, but how they are all sort of dependent on many kinds of other uh, conceptions of the nation in other countries. So so that instead of thinking in sort of only oppositional way, which indeed is what the demonstrators of the Manif Portus wanted, uh, we think in terms of permanent diffraction of the circulation of, uh, of ideas uh, across the, the Atlantic. An echo, it's something that you cannot really sort of locate, right? Mm-hmm. There is a sound, but you don't know if this sound is actually already the echo of another sound. So that's why I use both the notion of fantasy and the notion of echo rather than uh, the notion of reception. Well, and the reverberations are multiple, right? Because you begin the book by talking about how you have been asked that, you know, your American friends or colleagues are, were asking you questions about, well, how is this possible, this type of demonstration um, in France, which then represents the American response to the French response to the American exactly. response. In the first chapter of the book, 
Puno, uh, entitled Who's Afraid of Gender Theory, you really focus on the opposition to gay marriage in France and the origins of of the movements that that take shape in France. And you raised this a a couple of moments ago, and I just want to come back to it for a moment, which is the, the notion that some of the tactics used by these organizations, and especially by the Manif Poutous, really confound our notion of what left and right politics look like. Um, could you say a little bit about that? Sure. One of the key aspects is the sort of recent history of the Socialist Party. Uh, the fact that for years in the 60s and 70s, the Socialist Party was against the institutions of the Fifth Republic, not only against the Gaullist Party, but against the institutions themselves. And when they access uh, to power in 1981 with the election of François Mitterrand, uh, they were in a sort of a catch-22 after having been so opposed to the institutions. How could they run public affairs and by claiming that they had the same kind of authority uh, for that and legitimacy for that than the, the, the Gaullist and the centre-right uh, in previous years. So one of the things that the Socialist Party did was to claim that in the name of their humanist philosophy, they had a responsibility for protecting the body. Mm. It, it was a time when started to emerge new technologies uh, of reproduction. And a certain number of organizations were claiming that they should have access, everybody should have access to those technologies as a form of a right. So the Socialist Party tried to actually say, no, the body is not something that the individual can decide about. It has always a collective dimension. Hmm. It is a symbol, a symbol for the collectivity, a symbol for the nation. And hence, it should be protected from sort of excessive and in particular commercial kind of uses. So the Socialist Party installed all kind of bioethics committees which reduced the possibilities for using technologies to specific cases of infertility. So in short, technologies were only here to repair nature, not to transform it, right? Mm. So that's what led to uh, the law of 1994 that limits uh, or limited um, assisted procreation to heterosexual couples right. and made uh, surrogacy forbidden in, in France. So if I'm saying all this is that there was already installed by the left a certain conception that articulates representations of the body with family norms Mm-hmm. Uh, that the right only had to appropriate. So, so, so the left has sort of somehow paved the way for arguments by reactionary movements against the commodification of the body by global capitalism and the fact that there would be a slippery slope, starting with gay marriage, then adoption, then assisted procreation, then surrogacy, and even then marriage with animals and so on and so forth. Right. So that's really the first reason for which the right could sort of be more vocal because something had already been prepared on the left side or at least governmental left. Now there's also something else, which is the increasing disconnection between the Socialist Party and social movements, post-colonial social movements, but also 
sexual um, minority uh, social movements in the 80s and 90s, because with the sort of celebration of the bicentennial of the French Revolution by, by, by the end of the 80s, the social, in a context of economic crisis, in a context of a rise of the National Front as well, mm-hmm. the, the, the governments at the time tried to find a way to reconceive, reinvent French identity and a very substantial way to, to, to define French uh, identity. And to do so, they cut the link, which was already very fragile in the 70s, between social movements and them. So somehow all the visual aspects, all this was sort of dropped in the process and could be appropriated by the right once again, which claimed that they were the real people, the real people fighting for a just cause against an uh, elite corrupted minority. Right. So there's also a certain form of irony because for years, the, the, the socialist mo- movements were conceived uh, as a minority, as a dangerous movement, internationalized movement that could threaten the state from within. And suddenly they, they switch gears, they disconnected themselves from, from, from minority politics. So that's why in the Manif pour tous, to be very concrete, uh, you had posters of former industrial sites mm-hmm. uh, that had closed by saying priority is uh, fighting uh, unemployment. It's not gay marriage. Right. Or that's how the children of the demonstrators were dressed up as Gavroche, you know, the, per, the poor Erkin, the symbol of Paris city uh, urban life in the 19th century in Les Miserables. Because... Precisely, these symbols had been abandoned mm-hmm. uh, by the left. And of course, there is a certain misunderstanding because if you read a little more closely these posters, you see all kinds of contradictions. Right. Uh, Les Miserables is the sort of successful story of an adoption by a single man. So it was <laughs> quite, quite strange to use this symbol. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. In the second chapter of the book, uh, Bruno, The Many Meanings of Queer, you explore the different uses of queer theory in France. And this chapter draws on about 40 or more interviews that you conducted with activists and scholars and different figures um, in France. And I, I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about who you chose to speak to, how you made those choices, and what some of the highlights or challenges of that process, and including that in your research and in the writing of the book, might have been. Well, I used sort of a traditional kind of snowball uh, strategy where you basically use an interview to fill a gap, to have access to archives that you wouldn't have had access to, to a more precise uh, description of a a conference, an event, uh, the creation of a new media, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, basically, it became a sort of a, a tree where I had to decide to interview other people. So I did that myself, and I did that also in collaboration with a scholar uh, in, in France, uh, Natasha Chetkuti-Ozorovitz, uh, with whom I had already worked uh, in, in the past, uh, also because of her background and the way she studied lesbian movements, feminist movements in, in, in France. She also had access to a certain number of scholars, uh, in particular in feminist movements, who might have been a little bit reluctant 
with regard to speaking with me, uh, also because now I am perceived as an American scholar. Uh, um, so we used, we, we play this sort of uh, double strategy. And I must say that though I had observed from within uh, the development of queer seminars and activist movements and media in France when I was in France uh, 10 years ago, it was a little bit difficult to access, to have the possibility to interview a certain number of queer scholars, people who define themselves as queer scholars, and some activists as well. Mm-hmm. Precisely because of these sort of misuses, conservative uses, with regards to uh, the word queer, the, the notion of gender theory and, and, and gender studies, uh, in, in the past decade in France, there was a certain form of reluctance uh, in in sort of being studied uh, with the impression that the study would sort of being a sort of a new universalist approach. Mm-hmm. We would sort of try to inscribe them in a sort of a linear kind of history, which I tried to avoid as much as I could. Right. Though, of course, when it comes to writing, you still have to organize your, right. your thoughts and your data in a certain way. So you cannot completely uh, uh, avoid uh, this pitfall. What can you tell us, Puno, about the adoption of the word queer and specifically what and how queer means in France or in French usage differently from how we might think we know or understand its significance in a North American context or an Anglophone context, let's say? Uh, that's an excellent question because that's also somehow one of the things that maybe triggered my desire to work on this topic even before the demonstrations against gay marriage and adoption mm-hmm. uh, that I mentioned earlier. Because when I was in Paris, so from 1999 and 1998 uh, until 2010 and was involved in all kind of of research projects and, 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 and seminars, I also saw people using in academic institutions the ref, a reference to the word queer and queer theory against the development of feminist studies and LGBT studies and more broadly critical studies. So in short, a certain number of conservative scholars in France at a time when, and it was very much the result of social movements and, and the change in, in terms of legislation. It's because of parity laws. It's because of the civil unions that indeed there was a bigger, stronger visibility of uh, LGBT issues, mm-hmm. women's rights uh, issues, that also a certain number of students wanted to study uh, these, these questions. And that started to emerge a certain number of seminars uh, in, in various universities. But to resist that, the most conservative scholars basically argued that feminist studies, LGBT studies, were single-handedly about identities. So somehow already, how do you say that, outfashioned by things that, that were happening in the U.S. So they very much used the word queer to say, well, what you're doing is actually a dead end, developing studies on minorities, because, of course, for them, it was a way to reassert uh, a universalist frame and, and not to question 
their own supposed neutrality uh, when it comes to, to doing research. And the fact that neutrality is very often, especially in the French case, associated with a majority. Mm -hmm. So that's when it started. You know, for me, it was stunning that the word queer could be used uh, in a pretty conservative way. While there were people uh, in France that were start starting to appropriate that in a more critical way. And the, the, the reason for which there were such opposite uses of the word queer, it's precisely because queer at the time didn't mean anything in French. Mm -hmm. so, so the venom of the word queer queer, so to speak, the fact that when you say queer theory, queer studies in an Anglophone context, you immediately reappropriate an insult, a stigma, mm -hmm. and you raise the question of standpoint, you raise the question of uh, uh, approaching critically categories, and so on and so forth. If you, at the time, saying queer didn't mean much. And this is also something that we could uh, observe uh, in, in, in 10 years ago in the, in the media, when a certain number of TV shows such as Queer Eyes, uh, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, right. were sort of translated into French, uh, it simply became Queer Five Trendy Experts. <laughs> so it, it's quite interesting, this shift. The, the show was broadcasted uh, by TF1, so the main commercial TV channel in France. Mm -hmm. And in the wake of civil unions and in the wake of a greater visibility of uh, LGBT movements in France, there was a market and TF1 sort of tried to target this market, but without alienating their traditional audience. So by not naming, making explicit that the core of this TV show was uh, the uh, homosexual innuendos, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. So this is another example where the word queer was used precisely because it didn't mean much in France. So th there were really both sides, a certain risk, uh, but also a potential, because then the, wor the word could be used uh, by activists in an e maybe even broader way uh, in, in the French context. You go on in the book, Bruno, to talk about sort of transatlantic homecomings and there's sort of this notion of a, of a, I guess, a queer Atlantic. And I just wonder whether you think about the book as a contribution and what type of contribution, if, if you do, to this much longer term history dating, well, at least as far back as the 19th century, perhaps the 18th, of the relationship between France and America uh, as a kind of fantasy, not just the United States, but America. Like how you see the book in that broader set of scholarly and other conversations about Americanization, uh, the French image of the United States, and how this particular piece of that history fits with that longer term story. What, what I do in the third chapter, so basically the first chapter covers the anti-gay marriage movements, uh, the relation with the Socialist Party, the second chapter take them seriously, so to speak, by studying the actual presence of uh, a queer theory in France, in the activist world, in uh, the academic world, in the mass media, and so on and so forth. And then I switch somehow to a certain study of the content itself. Mm -hmm. So what kind of concepts, uh, what kind of ideas developed in the U.S. within also this sort of 
broad and very diverse world, which is uh, queer queer studies and uh, on, on different campuses, mm-hmm. how they are used in France and what kind of fantasies of the U.S. Uh, are driven from the from the use of different concepts, indeed, such as homonationalism, gay international, and, and so on and so forth. What I've tried to do in this chapter, and you're right, this is not a new phenomenon, uh, and, and it, it dates probably the late or mid-18th century. But what I try to show here is that what is at stake nowadays in, in, in the sort of fantasies of the U.S. in France is the articulation between the global and the local on the one hand, mm-hmm. and the majority and the minority on the other. And what I try to show is that there is a certain trend in France to identify global with majority and local with minority. Hmm. And and global being, of course, symbolized by by the U.S. and uh, local being symbolized by forms of resistances, especially vis-à-vis the global south. So what I try to do is to show that actually these two sort of axes do not perfectly coincide. Right. Uh, and that you can have minority movements with, with the global calls or aspirations and m- majority culture uh, very, very much localized. So I'm trying sort of not to only focus on the, on the U.S. Uh, as a sort of um, case that that would speak for all others, but very much as the sort of the vehicle for something else. Right. And so I think what matters here is mostly the question of postcolonialism in France that uses uh, the uh, American example to express a certain number of fears, to express a certain number of norms, but not so much uh, the U.S. as such. So it's it's mostly about, it's almost about the U.S. as a totem, huh. right? As, as something that, that, that you identify with, but that has mostly a symbolic function. So in this chapter, then, what connections are you making, Bruno, between sexuality, nationalism, and sort of a broader French politics, but especially the politics of the far right? Because it's one of the things you're kind of having to negotiate in the book is that is, as you say, taking seriously or, you know, offering histories of organizations and um, LGBTQ movements and ideas, but also to always be keeping in mind, well, the trigger for the book, which was this sort of anti-gay marriage movements, but then to think about it more broadly is, you know, the politics of the far right, what interplay is there between these ideas of sexuality and nationalism uh, in the French context with respect to those, what we might call, I don't know, reactionary, uh, conservative, uh, sometimes religious, sometimes not, uh, movements? Well, I think we might have to dive <laughs> into the French presidential election at this uh, at this stage. It was going to happen at some point. <laughs> uh, because it is very clear from the um, second round debate uh, between uh, Emmanuel Macron and, and Marie Le Pen that sexuality was at the very core of the debate, mm-hmm. but not in terms of public policies, not in terms of political platform. And w- what was actually frightening in, in this uh, 2017 presidential campaign is that issues uh, 
vis-à-vis sexual minorities uh, were not frequently discussed. And there are very important questions to be debated Mm -hmm. in terms of differential access to economic resources, in terms of trans rights, uh, in terms, of course, of assisted uh, procreation, in terms of uh, visibility and representation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somehow, even after the Tobira law, you have almost no major uh, elected official, openly lesbian, gay, or trans in France. So wh- why does the representation of the elected body mm-hmm. has not changed in the French context? So you have all kind of key elements with regards to minority politics and policies, which were completely absent, almost completely absent from the, from the campaign mm-hmm. and the debate. But at the same time, sexuality was very much used as is sort of a tool or instrument in the political rhetorics. That is to say, Marine Le Pen, for instance, tried to destabilize uh, um, Emmanuel Macron by claiming that uh, he was supported by Pierre Berger, so the former companion of uh, Yves Saint Laurent, Mm -hmm. and Pierre Berger uh, made public claims in favor of surrogacy. So here it's, it's about trying to understand why sexuality has become so disconnected with, with, with sexuality itself, with, 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 with the, the, the presence of, of minorities themselves. And I think that's uh, the consequence of all those debates uh, and, of, and the sort of the drift, the conservative drift of the left and the fact that the National Front and the extreme right has somehow dictated Uh, the political debate for the past 20, 30 years. In the fourth chapter of the book, Bruno, you talk about the specter of queer politics, and this is really a chapter in which you analyze the political resistance to queer theory in France, and you you actually go back historically to the First World War and this idea of a fear of homosexual betrayal in France, and if, in some sense, you were saying that, you know, these questions about sexuality and nationalism are at the heart of Uh, far-right politics in France. This is kind of a chapter in which you are coming to the question about the origins of the French nation and republicanism and universalism uh, writ large. Could you explain a little bit what you mean by this fear of homosexual betrayal and how it traces back to the early 20th century in the French context? Uh, In short, and I I will be very simplistic here, Mm -hmm. obviously, but the way the republican body politic emerged during the French Revolution to sort of replace the two bodies of of the king was very much by claiming or insisting on the coherence of the social body and the threat of all kind of intermediate bodies within the state, whether comedians, Jews, I mean, it's, of course, the famous discourse of Clermont-Tonnerre on uh, recognizing Jews as individuals, but not as a nation. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, so somehow the fear of a homosexual betrayal is the sort of the outcome of, of all this. But it has, and that's what I, I, I try to, to show, it has specific dimensions, uh, in particular, the fear of sameness, the fact that homosexuality would lead to a certain form of social endogamy, mm-hmm. this idea that somehow the, the main goal of homosexuality is to, uh, uh, to literally reproduce, <laughs> that is to say to produce more homosexuals. 
So uh, it's it's betrayal and contamination at the same time. Right. Uh, the fact that it would transform the image of French citizenship itself, uh, the model of what the French citizen is, which is very much associated with uh, heterosexuality and the distinction between men and women. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's how the exclusion of women from, from political life and homophobia are connected. I try to show also that the fear of betrayal is also a fear of theatricality. The fact that, and in particular, queer theatricality. So there are uh, a, a certain number of authors on, on the left side who, who basically criticized queer theory for looking at the social world as if everything was theater play, mm-hmm. as if everything was artificial, as if everything was ironic, as if everything uh, was detached from the materiality of sexual uh, categories. So, and, and by claiming that sexuality is always theatrical, it would make heterosexuality and uh, fertile uh, heterosexuality more difficult. Um, so th- this fantasy uh, is actually a fantasy of uh, translation as well. To put it differently, and this is something that we haven't discussed so far, mm-hmm. once the law was uh, adopted on gay marriage and adoption uh, at, the, at the National Assembly, the demonstrators against gay marriage and adoption started to focus more specifically on gender theory and more specifically on schools by saying that gender theory was meant to transform programs in middle schools, high schools, when it comes to biology, to uh, history, and and so on and so forth. And so that there was a danger of corrupting youth and, again, making the path to homosexuality easier. And actually, the socialist government heard them and withdrew Mm -hmm. uh, gender equality programs in middle schools. Um, uh, The the, the legality. So, and the conception that was developed by the leaders of the anti-gay marriage movements at, at, at the time was that education is not about performativity. Education is about a model, in that, for them, a divine model. So, in short, if God made man in his image, then education should be about trying to mimic this divine model uh, as much as possible. So, of course, if you claim that gender is uh, a performance that is a performance inspired by another performance, by another performance, and so on and so forth, which Judith Butler Mm -hmm. called the performative chain, then, of course, you claim that gender is a copy without original, that there is no fundamental uh, gender role uh, to identify. And that's quite unbearable in terms of the way the, the sort of the manufacture of the, the children of the nation could become. So this is the fear somehow developed on, in the most reactionary and religious movements. But somehow it echoes a certain number of intellectual fears on the left side when it comes to translation by saying queer made the text uh, itself more blur uh, because queer activists use English words. They claim to be more international. They use other languages uh, as a form of resistance. Mm -hmm. 
So somehow they claim that we are always in between, but we do not fully belong to one space rather than to another. So then it questions somehow the very need for translating. So, they, they, so it's the case of Anne-Emmanuel Berger, for instance, uh, who wrote a book on this very topic and who is very much afraid of the fact that queerness, so to speak, we, will not only weaken the pleasure of sex, uh, and in that case, heterosexual sex, by making everything theatrical, but also the pleasure of text itself. You know, right. trying to translate an original meaning, in that case, I into French. So what I try to do uh, in this chapter is to show that the fear of betrayal of minority groups since the French Revolution is actually played on different registers, whether queer theatricality, whether, of course, the contamination, I mean, the direct contagion uh, of, of, of minorities, and in particular in the case of the HIV epidemics, sure. and a certain fear of, of the death drive as, as well. The fact that, as I said earlier, that homosexuality would only lead to the reproduction of homosexuality would be only associated with immediate pleasure without projecting itself enough in the future of not only the family group, but also the nation. Right, so the reproduction of homosexuality is the end of reproduction, ultimately. Yes, it's, it's the paradox of, of this claim, absolutely. So at the core of this chapter, Bruno, but then in some sense the kind of upshot of, of the project as a whole is offering up different ways of thinking about profound notions of belonging, community, minority politics. And you're really suggesting another way of thinking about some of these things in terms of the critique of norms and a critical belonging that lays at the very foundation of citizenship. So I guess I want to ask you to tell us about that and where you see this work pointing in the direction of in terms of how we think about belonging community citizenship going forward. Mm -hmm. Well, somehow the starting point is quite simple. You know, if queer theory is about deconstructing categories and using categories in a more critical way, it should have been welcomed mm -hmm. in a context where France insists on anti-communitarianism, mm -hmm. that is to say not, you know, depending or defining yourself through the lenses of a specific group, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it wasn't so much the case, and there was a strong resistance to, to queer theory in France. And, and what I argue in the book is that because queer theory, uh, despite all the diversity of the, the works in queer theory, has probably one common thread, which is that to claim that being part of a group is based as much on belonging as it is on not belonging. You know, queer, queer theory, and it's the case with the work of, of Judith Butler, of course. Judith Butler is very interested in the very moments of friction when individual behaviors or group behaviors and the norm do not match, right? When, when, when something fails, when something do not coincide. And this is this friction area that is very much interesting for her. And so, and, and, and so what's behind that is, is the fact that belonging is not a totality. Mm -hmm. Belonging is always something conflicted, is always something that is defined both through adhering to a certain model, but also distancing yourself from this very model. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this is very much a claim that queer theory makes. And in a context where France has all kind of substantialist 
claims with regards to belonging and identity, of course, uh, it becomes a source of resistance and it's perceived as a threat. I often give an example which is also related to the book in a certain way, because in the book I, I talk about new queer movements in France, so I use different examples, and one of, uh, of these examples is uh, the Queer Week, which is uh, at Sciences Po, so at sort of an elite school uh, in France, the sort of school of government, so to speak. Uh, students, especially students who had traveled to American campuses for the uh, year of studying abroad, they decided to create all kind of uh, events around sexual minorities issues, and they called that Queer Week, right? And this provoked all kind of reactions from the far right and uh, reactionary movements, which tried to prevent or oppose these uh, these series of events. And when I was myself teaching at Sciences Po, I remember very clearly that it was the first year when the sort of affirmative action program started at Sciences Po. Mm. That is to say, students from underprivileged areas had the possibility to sort of access the institution with a specific form of selection, um, which was very difficult, but, you know, which basically took into account their own backgrounds. And what I saw as an instructor at the time is that the traditional Sciences Po students started to sort of distantiate themselves from Sciences Po by saying, well, no, we're at Sciences Po, but it's fine. We could do something else. So it's not that great a school. So somehow they would sort of benefit from being in this school with all the things that it meant in terms of, of course, classes, but also in terms of social network. But at the same time, by taking a certain distance, but the newcomers couldn't because they, they, as, a, as somehow a minority in this very school, they didn't have the luxury right. to disavow the school, to disavow their own experience, what they had uh, sort of achieved. So this example is also uh, what I try to, to sort of connect in the, by, 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 at the end of the book, which is the question of class on the one hand and the question of, of sexuality by very much using minority becoming a framework to understand that. If you are, you know, a very bourgeois person in the city center and you critique uh, French identity, you're perceived as an intellectual <laughs> making uh, an interesting statement about French history, French, uh, mm -hmm. French society, and so on and so forth. If you are in the suburbs, if you are gay, lesbian, trans, you are immediately suspected to betray the nation. So it is a core mechanism of discrimination. We tend to only focus on belonging by saying, you know, sexual minorities are discriminated against because they are meant not to belong uh, enough. But it's also about the ability to critique uh, belonging. Uh, that uh, it's also through, sorry, the, the very critique of belonging that discrimination circulates. Throughout the book and, and this conversation that we're having, Bruno, race and religion and the idea of religious and racial minority certainly play roles. Well, I guess I'm wondering about a couple of things. The workings of the, the questions around sexual minority in the French context, the ways in which those workings may or may not be analogous to the ways 
French government, state, uh, people, uh, scholars, uh, activists deal with issues around religious and racial minorities, but also, of course, the idea that none of these things are mutually exclusive, so there are, in fact, multiple minority categories and communities. Yeah, I guess a question about the analogies between dealings around sexual, racial, and religious minority, but then also how these things collide, intersect, and, and how you think about that in your own work and, and more broadly. Well, that's somehow almost the purpose of, a, of, of, of my next book project. Oh, fantastic, because I need to ask you about that as well. Uh, so it, it's quite tentative at this, uh, at this stage. But what I would say is that uh, you're completely right. The, the articulations between different processes of minorization when it comes to religion, to race, to class, to sexuality, to gender, and so on and so forth, are extremely complex, varies considerably uh, depending on, uh, on the context, on the very space where claims are, are, are made. But so what I try to address it's the very question of presence. And that's the purpose of the new book, to work on minority presence. By presence, I mean that it is not only a question of rights. It is not only a question of recognizing existing groups. It's about how these groups are being permanently produced and transformed in the very process of their production. And that it leads to a certain form of presence in the public space that is still unbearable to many. To give you one concrete example, uh, after the vote of, of the law on, on gay marriage and adoption, uh, the prime minister at the time, Jean-Marc Ayrault, but also a certain number of, of, of uh, members of the National Assembly, who actually voted in favor of this text, the first thing that they said uh, after the vote was, Let's go back to real issues. Let's go back to issues that are important issues for the French people. So they, they had just voted a text that somehow protected the rights of a, a minority. But at the same time, what they wanted was to get rid of issues raised by minorities. So this kind of very paradoxical thing where you recognize people not so much to recognize them, but to erase them even more. So what I would say now is that thinking in terms of presence of minorities in, in, in the public space is actually a, a, a key work to do from not only sort of pragmatic perspective, but also from a theoretical perspective. It has also a certain number of, of echoes in the U.S. if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the way the All Lives Matter movement tried to erase the, the way Black Lives Matter movement explained that uh, racial discrimination has to be addressed in its many specific forms or the way after the Orlando attack, the mass media took a lot of time to acknowledge the LGBT dimension of the attack, and then eventually when it was acknowledged, it was immediately sort of pushed either in a nationalist frame, an attack against America, or a universalist frame, we could have all been attacked, uh, which is also another form of erasure. So what I'm, I'm trying to work now, it's 
this very question of presence. And, and it's a real question also for queer theory itself, because the very, the, it's a return to maybe the, the origins of queer theory. There's a lot of work nowadays in queer theory that focused on fantasies of the future. Um, so, of course, with Lee Edelman's book, No Future, the question of the commemoration of the past, the question of archives, archives of feelings, and so on and so forth. But there's something about the present, you know, what Derrida called the present of presence, which is no longer as operational, as central as it used to be. And somehow queer theory started also with a queer claim, such as queer nations claim, you know, we are here, we are queer, get used to it. So there's something in terms of minority politics that could connect religious minorities, racial minorities, uh, uh, sexual minorities, and so on and so forth, uh, if we approach them through their very presence in the public uh, space. So I'm, I'm very much hoping to, to, to study a certain number of cases, uh, both in France and in the U.S., but also how the law responds to, to that, so in particular through uh, affirmative action. Well, that sounds like an exciting project, certainly one that I want to read when it comes out in new book form. I hope you'll come back and talk to me about it. Bruno, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today and for writing the book. Thank you so much for having me. 